the delightfulness of the afternoon, certainly the, the evening as it's about to come upon us, only challenges us to appreciate how blessed we are, the opportunity that's given to us by the freedoms that we enjoy. And even as was mentioned in our prayers just a few moments ago, the loveliness of God's blessings upon this nation and how that we should respond in character and in faith toward that. Certainly tonight it is an honor that we have to come into the very presence of God in an assembly like this. For isn't it still the case that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him? To quote Psalm 89, verse number 7. This evening, as you may have well noted in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, we will perhaps begin a somewhat brief series of studies on one of the lesser-known books of the Bible. Of those 66 books that we find in the Word of God, we readily appreciate that some of those that are nestled near the close of the Old Testament are sometimes a bit less familiar to us, but that certainly does not mean that the contents of those books are any less needful or any less important for us to appreciate. In fact, some introductory thoughts perhaps would be in order as we recollect a few things about the Old Testament, be it the book of Nahum or any of those other 38 Old Testament books. Isn't it still true that those things we are told in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 are written for us as examples that you and I in appreciation of that might understand the lessons that should be learned by virtue of what God shared in those ancient days of the long ago. It is thus the case that this evening I would encourage us to notice that the last 17 books of the Old Testament, by count, that's not far from half of all of the Old Testament books, are actually books of prophecy. When one considers the first five books are the books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the next 12 books, that commencing with Joshua, ending with the book of Esther, those are books of history. Following that, we then see the last 17 books of the Old Testament, starting with Isaiah, ending, of course, at the very character of Malachi. That particular set is, in fact, all books of poetry, uh, rather books of prophecy, and the last 12 of them are the, are the minor prophets. Making note of that thought, you might notice with me that those books have a rather interesting description. We notice that the five books of major prophecy, Isaiah, on through the book of uh, Daniel, those books are much longer. They, in fact, considerably are longer in terms of number of verses. But the last 12 are called minor prophet books. There might be tempting to think that since they're minor prophets, they're less important or they're less significant or they have a lesser role to play in the revelation of God's divine plan, but that is far from true. The word minor somehow in the days past came to be used to describe them because they're shorter. It doesn't mean they're less important. It doesn't mean they're less significant. In fact, tonight as we consider the book of Nahum, it certainly is one of the shorter books of the Bible. It only consists of three chapters, a grand total of only 47 verses, but yet... As it is the seventh of the minor prophets, it nonetheless is interesting, vital, and important, and I would encourage us tonight to begin the first of a three-part series in which we look at the book of Nahum. Maybe reminding ourselves of not only the setting of that book, but some of the things found in it that can still challenge us still to this day. Well, those introductory thoughts made, might we devote the first portion of our lesson this evening to recollecting some of the historical information about this book, 
Because just as surely as it is the case with regard to the New Testament books, if we are to understand this book in its setting, the lessons that were delivered to these people who lived at a certain time in history, we need to know something about that time in history. What were the circumstances surrounding the book? What prompted Nahum to write it? What were some of the matters troubling the people of God that Nahum addressed directly and that can still be useful to us as we consider our place and our station as the servants of God in this day? It is with those thoughts in mind that let's now rehearse just a few of the major matters of the book of Nahum. First, it's an easy thing to notice who wrote it, for that's the very name of the book. Nahum was a bold prophet of God in the long ago, and as this book was penned by him, you might notice, it was written in that time frame between 615 and 610 B.C. In historical matter, that places it in a very critical time, a very critical juncture in the history of ancient Judah. For example, you might notice that the children of Israel went into Babylonian captivity starting in 605 B.C. So this book predated that event by only around 8 to 10 years probably. In other words, the time of the captivity was looming on the horizon. Their lives were not what they ought to have been. Their behavior toward God was far short of what He would have them to be by virtue of what He delivered to them through the prophets and as well as through the law of Moses. And they needed to be reminded, in fact, challenged and charged that there is a God of heaven watching you and that you're going to give answer in a very few years to Babylon because of the nature of your doings. And it is in the nature of this book that specifically, the very opening verse of it sets before us the theme of the whole book. The first four words of the book read as follows, The Burden of Nineveh. And we have immediately set before us the very nature of what will be the thread that will continue all through the three chapters. The burden of Nineveh. This, in many ways, in three chapters, is a diatribe against Nineveh for her sin, for her wickedness, and that what's more, God in heaven is just and will not in any sense acquit those that are wicked. That lesson, you see, Judah needed to hear as well. But this specific message of this book was directed toward the very city and the people of Nineveh. The author, as we learn in verse number 1, was from the little village of Elkosh. We have a bit of a difficulty identifying where precisely that village was. There seemed to have been two that had a name similar to that. Which one Nahum was from, we simply do not know. At any rate, it's quick to see that since the prophet deals with Nineveh, we should remind ourselves of who Nineveh was and what place did it occupy and what particular region was it that met God's disapproval in this case. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Certainly she was a dominant and buoyant force in the ancient history of the world. Mighty to say the least. Cruel, absolutely. She treated her prisoners with reckless abandon and cruelty of heart. And as she did all of that, it did not go unnoticed in the halls of heaven. So much so that in this very book, God will in fact state the wrath that He will pour upon them in part because of the wrath that they had showed to some of those who were the peoples of that day. You might notice with me of interest that Assyria was the very empire who had conquered Israel 
only a little over 100 years earlier. That's interesting. So a little over 100 years after she had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, she is now, in fact, in position to maybe exert influence and power over Judah, but God has a different story for her. As we'll see in this book, Assyria is about to be destroyed. Nineveh is about to be overcome, and the burden of Nineveh will be set before us in graphic and vivid language. The history of the whole scene perhaps tells us now that Assyria is about to feel the wrath of an angry, angry God. Her wickedness, her sin, her undoing will in fact be the nature of the God of heaven pouring upon her the wrath that she had earned and the sinfulness that had brought her to feel the very wrath of heaven. Perhaps one interesting thing about this book that never ceases to be somewhat amazing is the fact that it really is a sequel to another Old Testament book. I perhaps state that because it might not be terribly known to us, but yet it is. The book of Jonah, also a four-chapter minor prophet book, and the story of that book is a bit more familiar to us. We know about Jonah's told to, by God to go and preach to Nineveh. And we remember at first he did not go. Rather, he went the opposite direction, fleeing from God. He went to Joppa, boarded a ship bound for Tarshish. And we well remember that a storm came upon that sea and he soon was thrown overboard by the mariners there of that ship. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish and then God gave commandment to vomit him upon dry land and that the fish did. Following that in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached to that city and they heard his message and they repented. On that occasion, God spared Nineveh. He was about to destroy it within 40 days, according to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. But because they repented, and with earnestness and sincerity of heart, they responded to the command of God through Jonah, they were spared. However, the curtain is about to fall on Nineveh one more time. This time, she did not have a tender heart to respond. This time, Nineveh did not have an ear to hear the things of God and to, in fact, repent. And so this time Nahum is sent a little over a hundred years later. And this time he is told to proclaim the destruction of this, of this place because of their standing before the God of heaven. And so in that sense, Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. Those kind of matters bring us to the very bottom thing upon that slide. This book has three chapters and in some ways one can describe the three chapters in the following manner. Chapter number 1 sets before us the destruction of Nineveh by virtue of the nature of its declaration. Chapter 1 declares the destruction of Nineveh. Chapter 2 will describe the destruction of Nineveh. And chapter 3 will assert to us that the destruction was deserved. So if you wish to implant in your mind three brief things about the chapters of the book of Nahum that might help you remember some of the features of it, with regard to the destruction of Nineveh, it was declared, it was described, and it was deserved. It is with those things in mind that we have in the opening chapter, which is where we shall discuss this evening, some features about the God of heaven who gave statements about this destruction of Nineveh. What might some of those statements have been, and what can we learn about God based on this? There probably are those in our world and the number of them might be legion. Who would be a bit confused about God by virtue of the book of Nahum? 
Here is a God of heaven who is now declaring the destruction of this people, the destruction of this city, and He is going to pour forth that wrath in great abundance upon them. There might be some today who would ask, well, what kind of God would that be? A God who pours wrath upon these who do not respond to Him, should He not in His love extend a great hand of opportunity to them? Should He not, in fact, envelop them with His arm of love and welcome them in despite their disobedience? Let's wrestle with that thought primarily for the remainder of the lesson, and we're going to find the answer to those kinds of questions to be a resounding no. Let's build our arguments using Nahum chapter 1, and let's begin by noticing the opening saga that Nahum will ever keep in mind. Perhaps no clearer words can be found than Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That question was asserted even in the days of Abraham, and it still was so clear, and it still was so powerful even in the days of Nahum. God always does what's right. You and I, in our feeble, frail mind, in our limited knowledge, may not understand the thoroughness of His doings. For the secret things still do belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But it should be an element of faith within us to ever understand God always does what is right. With that thought in mind, let's turn to Nahum chapter 1. In these 15 verses, let's read the opening chapter. And at that point, we'll be able to revisit and look at some characteristics of God that are so eloquently presented and that also are presented in great strength in the opening chapter of this book. The Burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry. He drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth in Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at Him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein." Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. But with an overrunning flood He will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue His enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time." For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. 
perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Penetrating language indeed, isn't it? And just as surely as this oracle is delivered against Nineveh, we find within it an, an amazing set of descriptions for God. You might have noted them as we read. How many times was God described by one or other features and characteristics? And that gave me the title, in fact, to the lesson tonight. Nahum Part 1, The Characteristics of God. Just as surely as he pronounces doom upon Nineveh, the God of heaven is described, and Judah in the last verse of that chapter is urged to hold faithful to that God, to not lose heart because of Nineveh. Nineveh, you see, is vile and shall be destroyed. Nineveh will not, will not persist. But those who follow the way of God will persist. They will be strong. They will conquer. They will, in fact, proceed through and emerge victorious because the power of God is with them. Revisiting then chapter number 1, I've listed some characteristics of God on that slide before us. Let's look at them somewhat briefly, one by one. And you'll notice after each one, I've presented the verse in which that description is found. So if you like to make notes in your Bible or follow along in that way, you certainly are free to do that. But verse number 3 begins our description. The Lord, we are told, is slow to anger. You might notice earlier I said that Jonah had preached to this place well over a century before. But over the course of that century, she had forgotten that repentance that she learned then. Nineveh no longer was the stalwart of faithfulness at that time that she was. Her heart was no longer tender. She had long since become unresponsive to the things of truth. It's not at all that God had hastily pronounced her destruction. God had been slow to anger with regard to Nineveh. Her power and her strength had been such that God brought her to the strength that she enjoyed. God is the one who bolstered her and allowed her to reign dominant over the ancient world. However, in pride, she had long since forgotten who made her strong. And now her destruction was before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. God, you see, was slow to anger with Nineveh. And isn't it amazing to consider that that slow to anger with respect to God still describes His patient and His long-suffering nature. I might submit that's still true with respect to you and me today, isn't it? Oh, how desperately we need to appreciate the long-suffering character of God. If God were hasty, if He were to the point He would long since have killed me because... I've been too long a sinner. But God in patience and in long-suffering nature had extended to me and to you as well the opportunity of gracefulness and the opportunity of the gracious gospel that He has extended. Notice some of those passages that challenge us in regard to the role of salvation that God's long-suffering nature brings. In 2 Peter 3 verse 15, we read there, "...the long-suffering of God is salvation." If it were not for God's patience and His long-suffering, who among us could ever be saved? But yet, with tender opportunity, He gives us, when we mess up, the opportunity to come back to Him. The opportunity to understand our mistake and our sin and our iniquity, and to again to rely upon what God has extended. Notice in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, only six verses earlier, we read there, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
How good indeed God has been to us to allow us to meet tonight like this. There are individuals in the world who are Christians who have to meet under cover of caves in places where they're under cover from authorities who otherwise would imprison them. How good He has been to us and how long-suffering to send His Son and to put up with sinful man who in so many cases rebels against Him. God indeed has been patient, hasn't He? Perhaps one other passage you might recall with me in 1 Peter 3 verse 20. There we especially notice that the long-suffering of God was even present in the days of Noah. You see, it took Noah over a hundred years to construct that ark. For a hundred years he preached righteousness and urged repentance. Sadly, there wasn't a single response, apparently. For only eight souls were aboard that ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Thus, the long-suffering of God has been with us basically from the dawn of time. Nahum pronounces that same long-suffering character. He is slow to anger. Notice furthermore a second characteristic from the same verse. Verse 3 says, God is also great in power. Certainly Nineveh was great in power too, but God was far greater. Just as we might note the dominant nature of Assyria, of Nineveh in the ancient world, she still, however, was going to crumble at the feet of the declaration of God because God had decreed that due to her behavior, her conduct, and her iniquity, she would not prevail. Thus, notice how strong God must be. If He's powerful enough and mighty enough to bring this world empire crumbling into the dust, is it not still true then that God is mighty? He is powerful? There is nothing too hard for thee, Jeremiah declared in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Our Savior declared in Matthew nineteen twenty-six that with God all things are possible. Job uttered in Job 42, verse 2, I know that nothing can be withholding from thee. Speaking, of course, to God. Those things only challenge us today to remember that though at times there look to be strong things about us, be they nations, communities, states, governments, or peoples, they still are far weaker than the God of heaven. He, in fact, is dominant and mighty and powerful, and His will shall be accomplished. Those passages in regard to the fact that He is great in power only brings us to notice in the spiritual realm how majestic is that greatness. For instance, are we not reminded in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ came and destroyed him that had the power of death? Hebrews 2.14. And in 1 John 3 verse 8, For this purpose He, namely Christ, was manifested that He might destroy him who was the devil the opposer to God. Even the spiritual realm, the things of God are mighty indeed. That greatness and power only brings us really to the third observation. For in addition to those two, we also notice in verses 3 through 5 that the following statements are made. Again, verses 3 through 5. The Lord hath His way. That's found in verse 3. God indeed does have His way and the major teaching of the entirety of the Bible from the opening statement of Genesis 1 to the closing statement of Revelation 22 is this, the sovereignty of God. God's will shall be accomplished. It will come to pass. Men may rebel against it and they may in fact be unwilling subservience to Him. But whether they wish to be or not, His will shall be accomplished. 
It is in language like that that you might notice again verses 3, 4, and 5. In the natural realm, notice that he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. It is the case that God is able to appreciate that the mountains quake at him, verse 5. The hills melt and the earth is burned, verse 5. In verse 3, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. God is in control of matters in the natural realm. Those thoughts remind us ever so mightily of Daniel 4.25. God ruleth in the kingdoms of men. There may be instances in which as nations behave and conduct themselves in ways that are astounding to us, we appreciate the sinful way in which they behold themselves. We might always remember again, God rules in the kingdoms of men. In addition to that text of Daniel 4.25, in Psalm 66.7 we notice that God ruleth by His power forever. God rules, you see. Be it kingdoms of God or kingdoms of men or otherwise, God rules. Finally, one last verse is 1 Corinthians 10.13. In a spiritual way, aren't we reminded there that there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man? But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God has His way even in the spiritual realm. Were Satan given free reign, he would bring over you and me things that would overwhelm us. But God has promised, and His promise is sure, that no temptation will be so strong and so mighty and so inundating that we, by power of His Word and the opportunity of clear thinking, with respect thereto, can't find a way of escape. That way of escape does exist. So God will have His way. Those first three characteristics are only matched when we look at some others found in the same chapter. Let's look at what else we learn about the God that we so lovingly serve. Back up to verse number 3 again. We notice that it says that the Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. How interesting is that language. One of the clearest statements in all of the Bible of that fact, God will in no wise acquit those that are wicked. That's so interesting when we contrast it to the modern world in which we live. Day by day in this land, there are individuals who appear before juries and who appear before judges. And even upon hearing the evidence, those judges render a false verdict. Or those juries render a verdict that is not the correct and true one. They're misled by evidence. They're deceived by lies and falsehoods told by those who are in fact on trial. But notice something with me. God does not acquit the wicked. Notice what the word acquit means in case we might need to be reminded of that. The word simply means to clear of all charges. If a person appears before a judge and upon hearing the evidence, the judge says, not guilty, declares the person innocent and releases him, that person has been acquitted of the charges levied against him. Notice God does not acquit the wicked. He always renders the verdict that's correct, that's true, and that is in keeping with the actual nature of what took place. You can't fool God. Though men may have tried through the ages and centuries, and though many do today, may be rationalizing that they can hide things from Him, conceal matters from His disposition, it isn't so now, nor was it so in the past. 
God never acquits the wicked. In fact, notice several passages that challenge us in light of that very matter. In Numbers 32, 23, we read, Be sure your sin will find you out. That was told to ancient Israel. Be sure your sin will find you out. When you and I stoop to the committing of sin, we may think we've hidden it from others. We may think that we have succeeded in allowing no one else to know it. Be re rest assured, God knows it. Rest assured, there's a blackness upon your heart because you've been overcome with that which has distanced you from the God that loves you and from the salvation He wishes you to experience. You see, we can't hide from Him. And what does that remind us about the day of judgment? On that great and notable day, God will not acquit the wicked. How many perhaps live their life in thinking, well, I'm good enough for God to allow me to enter heaven. Friend, that's foolish to think so. Your goodness has nothing to do with it. Are you covered in the blood of His Son? God's in His Son that you might be saved. If you haven't tied on to that Son, if you have not thus lived your life in compliance to the commandments that Son has given, then you have no hope on the day of judgment. For notice these passages in Matthew 25, 46, the wicked will be sent away into everlasting destruction. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these will not be acquitted who have done sinfulness and who are wicked and who are not servants to the Master. Those matters only help us to see perhaps in the final verse, the last one that I listed, in Revelation chapter 20, we have a rather vivid description of an amazing set of events. Sometimes it's called the great white throne judgment. We have there the books are opened on that occasion. The book of life is also opened. And we find this rather clearly stated. Everyone whose name is not in that book of life is cast into hell. Revelation 20 verse 15. I might ask each of us to note then God doesn't acquit the wicked. It will be futile to think, well, even though I've done wicked, God's going to allow me entrance into heaven. And many a country song has had words and lyrics basically teaching that, but it isn't so. Many might have been comforted by it, but on the day of judgment it will not be that way. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew seven twenty three. Perhaps those matters take us to the next characteristic of God in this chapter. Notice in verse number 2, it opens in language like this. God is jealous. Nahum 1 verse 2. Jealous? Can we not see in that an interesting set of characteristics that I have listed there? God does not tolerate those who claim equality or even superiority to Him. He warned ancient Israel on a number of occasions, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments. The second one, that of course goes closely with it. They were not to make any graven images, to bow down to one of any fashion. Notice that second commandment, and both were repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. God is a jealous God, simply meaning that He is the one deserving of the utmost of our attention. 
that word jealousy isn't used in quite the same way that you and I might think of jealousy. We might think of a person being jealous in a bad way. That is not what is meant here. God is jealous in that He rightfully deserves the fullness of our attention. He, after all, created the universe, you and me, and everything in it. All who claim competition to Him are simply liars. And thus, be they false gods or other means or approaches in life, they are not worthy of our attention. And we will find ourselves in sore regret if we, in fact, devote to them what rightfully belongs to God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The marvelous refrain of Matthew 4, verse 10. Be it those passages or the others in 1 John 5, 21, we are even reminded today of the possibility of our givenness to idolatry. Little children, John wrote, keep yourselves from idols. You see, we can be guilty in many ways of similar things to what they did. Thus, just as surely as God's jealousy is set forth, notice what follows it in that same verse. The Lord revengeth. The Lord takes vengeance. We might ask, who will be the recipients of that vengeance? Surely the verse goes on to tell us, doesn't it? Verse number 2, The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and reserveth wrath for His enemies. You see, His vengeance is reserved for those who have rebelled against Him, for those who, despite the fact that He has been long-suffering to them, He has given them the opportunity to respond. He has opened to them the very death of His Son and all the blessings that it permits. They still have defiantly rebelled. Thus, we learn in that verse, there will come a time that His vengeance will be poured out upon them. That, of course, we see most clearly in the day of judgment. We notice on that day, all opportunities then to draw near to Him will have been passed. And thus, He will pour out His vengeance upon those who have refused the blood of His Son, those who have turned their back upon Him, those who have turned a deaf ear to what the Lord has taught. Then, God's vengeance will be poured out. And didn't Paul address that too in Romans 12, verse 19? In fact, there Paul said, You and I aren't to take vengeance in this life. That's left for God at judgment. God knows their heart. God appreciates the true standing of what they think and where they've come. We are thus not to take the vengeance on them in this life. God will take care of that on the day of judgment if they haven't made it right with Him by that time. As we consider the nature of the vengeance and what God has stated in this verse concerning it. That brings us to the last one upon that, upon that screen. Notice also we read in verse number 2 that the Lord is furious. Furious. And the Hebrew word behind that's a bit interesting. In fact, you'll notice, I put in parenthesis what the word actually means. When it says the Lord is furious, He is the possessor or the owner of wrath. Oh, indeed, God can be wrathful to those who are deserving of that wrath. To those who, in that previous statement, in that previous characteristic, those who are deserving of His vengeance, they will feel His wrath. There are many passages that teach us about that same idea. And didn't Ezra declare that in Ezra 8.22? When he even asserted that the Lord's vengeance and His wrath, His furiousness, if you will, will be poured on those that have forsaken Him. How dangerous it is if we forsake God. 
for that passage warns us that the thing we shall receive is not His goodness, but rather we will be the recipients of His wrath. Perhaps in addition to Ezra, we read in Revelation 15.1 that when those seven bowls or vials are poured out, they are vials containing the wrath of God. Perhaps we should ever keep in mind the honor and respect God is deserving because He's furious. As long as we are in His favor, He will defend, support, encourage, and aid us with all the power of His majesty. But if we rebel against Him and try to walk our own way, and we in fact defiantly strive to do that which He has condemned, we will receive His wrath. Perhaps sooner, but certainly later, and how regretful we'll be for the foolishness of our way. Perhaps all of those things brings us to a few closing thoughts, a few final characteristics of God, and then the lesson tonight will be yours. Three final things are stated in this chapter as you consider what is uttered about God. First of all, in verse number 7, which was the lesson text for tonight, the Lord is good. Some of these others have reminded us of the majesty and furiousness of God, but verse 7 says He is good. It is true, isn't it? We've noted in prayer, I think, twice today as we look about us and the testimony of His handiwork, how rich and beautiful it is to see God is good. He made that. He put in place the processes that resulted in those lovely things we see about us. His goodness, of course, is most majestically seen by what He has done spiritually. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That golden text of John 3.16. Notice there that God's goodness is phrased in His love. He sent His love for as lowly a creature as me. I was a sinner and so were you. And Christ died at Calvary for us. In Romans 5, verse 8, God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not a testimony to His goodness? And didn't Paul acclaim His goodness in Romans 2, verse 4? And also Romans 11, verse 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Oh, how lovely it is to be the recipients of His goodness, but how frightful it is to be the recipient of His wrath. Thus, whether it be His goodness... We might well notice in Psalm 52, verse 1, even David understood the extent of that goodness. That goodness is perhaps matched when we appreciate that he is also a stronghold in verse 7, in the day of trouble. Who can you and I rely on in those days of trouble? When things seem to be closing it about us and we are in the midst of despair, despondency, discouragement, and distress... Who is it but God that was a, is able to be there on those occasions? And He, we are told, is a stronghold in that day of trouble. You and I can ever rely upon the Savior, upon the marvelous God of heaven in those times of difficulty, when we're stressed and in anxiety, when we feel the need that in fact perhaps our closest ones have forsaken us. Then we can appreciate the loveliness of God's presence that perhaps our family can then rely upon what God has to offer. Here at Pippin, we as a family of the, of the family of God here can rely upon the stronghold of God in the day of trouble. And even individually and as physical families, we too can rely upon Him with strength and with great power. 
In Psalm 46, verse 1, one of the beautiful texts, I suppose, of that psalm, we read, God is our refuge and our strength in time of difficulty. In those times of hardship, God can be that stronghold, the one to which we turn as our citadel and as our tower of protection and sustenance. For isn't it true, in Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, we notice that we are reminded we should turn to Him in instances very much like that one. The closing verse to Psalm 55 perhaps says it so well as well. We read on that occasion that God sustains those that trust in Him. For can we not appreciate He will in fact be there to bolster and encourage and support? Perhaps that does lead us to the final of the ten tallies concerning the characteristics of God found in this chapter. Found also in the closing part of verses 7 and 8. He knoweth them that trust in Him. God knows whether we trust in Him or not. Perhaps tonight, do you trust in Him? God knows whether you do or whether you don't. He knows whether you've placed your trust elsewhere. And notice, He knew that Nineveh did not trust in Him, and they were about to be destroyed. It would only be now, roughly a few years into the future, the destruction of Nineveh, that Assyrian Empire came mightily at the hands of Babylon at the Battle of Carchemish in 609 B.C. So likely within six years from the time Nahum wrote this, Nineveh was crumbled into the dust. She had met her defeat because she rebelled against God. God knew she didn't trust in Him. And He knows tonight whether you and I trust in Him or not. It could be this evening that there's one or more in the sound of my voice who perhaps has been reminded that your life is not what it should be. Maybe you have seen in Nineveh many things that make you think of yourself. You know that you haven't lived the way you should. You've rebelled in one way or another against God's command. You haven't followed the teachings of His Son. You have forsaken what Christ offered you. Notice when Nineveh rejected God, they were destroyed. These characteristics of God tell us that God is long-suffering. He has given you tonight as an opportunity to render public obedience to Him if that's the need in your life. If we could be of assistance in doing that, or in aiding you to be baptized into Christ as an alien sinner who is in need of first becoming a Christian, Acts 2.47, we'd be honored to help in either of those ways. In our study of Nahum chapter 1, we've been reminded that God reigns supreme. If you need to humbly bow in His presence and offer it a public response and matter of confession to Him, will you not do that even now while together we stand and while we sing?